Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. So, on that point of why now, the honest truth is, Marybeth, is that there is finally now a commercial imperative to take DNI seriously. We never had that. DNI was always the people that were doing it well, were people who actually cared about it. But they invested a disproportionate amount of their time compared to competitors in getting it right. And now, I mean, this year alone, I've worked with the likes of Unilever and Diageo and P&G, global brands, who are firing their agencies in the US, in the UK, in Germany, in India, because they cannot show a commitment to diversity and inclusion initiatives. So the level of urgency has risen and I don't agree in necessarily that motivation, but what I do think is a good place to be in because interesting things are starting to happen. And yeah, it's interesting times. Welcome listeners to the Misinterpreted podcast. I'm Mary Beth West, Senior Strategist with Fletcher Marketing PR. Sorry to say that Kelly has to miss out on today's conversation. She is in the midst of a house move and is unfortunately going to be missing out on this conversation today, but she sends her regrets and she also sends her regards to today's guest, who she is very excited to hear from because it's a topic that has been on the forefront here in the United States, certainly one that at Fletcher Marketing PR we have sought to lend voice to. I'm happy to share with everyone we have another transatlantic special edition happening today with the guests that we have coming on. And we're going to love having today's guest on as much as we've seen other colleagues embrace his message and his energy. We're all members of the Public Relations and Communications Association based in London. And we were both guest speakers actually at the PR Fest in Scotland, the guests that we're having on today and I were. And just a shout out to Laura Sutherland of Aura PR in Scotland and the founder of the PR Fest. She is a past guest of the Misinterpreted Twitter chat herself. I virtually met our guest who is coming on here today with us. He was a big hit at the PR Fest and his presentation spurred a lot of compelling conversations. And really, I knew at that point that we needed to have him on Misinterpreted here for our podcast, particularly for the international perspective on the topic of diversity and inclusion. So our guest today is Rex Lakani. Rex is an independent digital PR consultant who is based in London in the UK. He has spent the past two decades working in various senior in-house and agency roles. He set up his own shop about five years ago and focuses his efforts in helping brands navigate their approach to integrated communications. So in addition to his hands-on practice that he has, he is also a visiting guest lecturer at a number of UK academic institutions, and he provides a wide range of professional training workshops on using social media within the public relations discipline. He also sits as the chair of the PRCA's Diversity Network, which is tasked with addressing broader DNI issues within the industry. I should also mention that the PRCA had some interesting news on the diversity expansion front with the development of an independent race and ethnicity equity board known as REAB. And I'll have Rex tell us about that here in just a minute. 
But here he is dialing in direct from London. Welcome, Rex, to Misinterpreted. Hello, Mary Beth. First, I have to start off by saying a massive thank you and all my best to Kelly as well. But I have to say, I've recently just discovered you guys and your podcast. And oh my God, I love it. I really love it. Oh, good. I'm I'm so so glad to know that. No worries. I'm so thankful to have this opportunity to, to talk to you today. I know we've been connecting online a lot, and <laughs> I don't know if I should say this, but I'll say it anyway. So I'm a massive fan of podcasts in general, and I've been trying to consume as many industry podcasts as I can, especially during this lockdown period. And there's something about yours and, and Kelly's podcast. A, it's brilliant. Obviously, that's a given. But you both have the most amazing, calm, uplifting voices to listen to. And it's a, it's a proper joy for me as a listener to, to hear your voices. So I'm overwhelmed to, to be talking to oh, you now. Oh, my word. Well, thank you so very much, Rax. We appreciate that very, very much. It's great to hear that feedback. And, of course, from the get-go, when we started our podcast, we, we laughed a lot because both Kelly and I are from the southeastern U.S., and we have that southern accent, that southern twang, if you will. And Well, I'm so (laughs) glad you do. I mean, some people kind of frown upon it or sort of look down their nose at it a little bit, but we wear it with pride in terms of where we're from, and it's just sort of part of who we are. And so uh, we appreciate the kind feedback very, very much. And we have really embraced the professional community in the UK so very much. The PRCA has really become our professional home, if you will, for a variety of reasons. I do want to thank you because you've been so personally and professionally supportive of me and of a lot of the issues relative to ethics and relative to just taking a stand in our industry for doing the right thing and you know, taking a stand for diversity and inclusion is a huge part of that. And you are such a leader in that arena. And it was just such a big reason that we had to have you on today so that you could lend voice to that. And I'd love for our listeners to get to know you a bit better before we really get started with that conversation. If you could tell us a little bit about your early career racks and how you got started in the PR business, what some of your early experiences were. Sure. Well, it's a bit of a, it's a sort of strange career path if I kind of analyze it. I've been kind of working in the PR and comms industry now for 20 years. And just saying that aloud kind of fills me with absolute dread of my impending old age. <laughs> but I came out of university here in, in the UK with a law degree. And then the very next day, I kind of knew that I really hated law. And I wanted wow. to, to find my vocation. And I think it's more interesting now when I reflect back on it is that I knew nothing about PR. I absolutely wasn't on my radar. I didn't even know that it existed formally as, a, as an industry, as a profession. But, uh, you know, I happen to be at a particular careers fair. And over here we have a lot of kind of job fairs just to kind of you know, recruit people into various industries. And I stumbled across a presentation about PR and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. So I entered this whole profession uh, eyes wide open, not really knowing much. And to be honest, it's been a labor of love. And I, I say that because, you know, 20 years on, fast forward, I genuinely am madly in love with our industry. Yeah. Which is probably why, I, you know, I have this kind of obsession with listening to people like you and podcasts and really just trying to really grapple with the big issues of the industry. You now, I started off in various agencies, learning the craft. And I think it was 
a question of being at the right place at the right time. So this was a time when I think PR was definitely kind of being pulled into being primarily represented by media relations. But at the same time, something interesting was happening online. So back then it was being called Web 2.0. And then the PR community globally then embraced it as PR 2.0, this whole new world. And it's what we, we've come to know as social media. So my career path has really been catalyzed by this emergence of online communities. And if I were to describe what I do, I'm an online digital PR specialist, social media a sort of integration into the bigger picture. But it's really tough because I think the industry has been really slow in innovating. Uh, over here in the UK, at least anyway, because I'm on a wider scale, I'm still talking about what I do in terms of traditional and digital, and they're both words that are just abhorrent to me. <laughs> I think that there's no PR right now that doesn't have any digital footprint. And right. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's been an interesting path, and I've worked across loads of agencies. I then took an in-house role with the UK government here, and I was heading up digital communications at the Ministry of Justice a while ago now, and it was, uh, and it still is, I think, the biggest government department we have here in the UK. And then I went back into agency, uh, I've worked across multiple sectors, and about five years ago, as you, you said at the top of the show, I kind of naively went it alone to set up on my own, and it's probably the scariest thing I've done, but it's by far the best thing I've ever done. And just to give you some perspective, in the last two years, um, I've probably worked with 100 or so organizations, primarily agency side, both at a big global level and at quite a small, medium-sized kind of enterprise level. And it's been fascinating for me, just as a practitioner, to get that level of insight, which I think is quite unique, and it's, I'm really privileged to be able to do that. So I can go in and see where is the industry at, not just on the level of work we're doing, but also within the systemic structures that it has in place. And it's, it's been interesting. It's been interesting, I have to say that. So, yeah, that's me. That is a wonderful summary. And I feel like we are kindred spirits because the way that you described your early years and that formative time where you really just embraced full on the purpose and the intent of the profession as a place where it can be such a force for good in society and, you know, wanting to be part of that. I mean, I really got a sense for your passion for the profession in that respect. And it just sounds like clearly you are on one continent and I was on another continent, but it sounds like we kind of forged similar paths for similar reasons. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I started out, had internships and on the agency side, went into the corporate arena for a little while early in my career. And then when I started my family and just needed better flexibility, I started out on my own earlier. I was about 30 years old when I started my consulting practice and then had it for about 15 years. It's just been such a journey through all of that time of, of seeing how the industry has evolved and seeing how all this confluence of technology has evolved, really the toolbox of what we do. But essentially, though, I think the core of what we do in developing strong communications, developing relationships, 
as Rod Cartwright was on our podcast recently, yeah. as you well know, and thank you for tweeting about Big that. Rod, yeah. Yes, he's wonderful. He's wonderful. <laughs> Great guy. But yeah. uh, one thing that he talked about was the human factor of what we do, you know, and really just focusing so much on that. So the communications, the relationships, and focusing on brand reputation, those are the core elements that have never changed from the get-go. And as long as technology is changing, the toolbox is going to change. How we do what we do is going to evolve. But the core of what we're trying to achieve is trust. And there are some real fundamentals there that are non-negotiable. And it seems like there's just part of our community that understands that, And there's part of the community that maybe questions that or doesn't have their arms around that. And I think that's the fundamental underlying conflict that there may be, whether it's in our profession or whether it's with those who are external to our profession who really don't understand it. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that that there is this, and I have it personally, this existential crisis about what PR is. And I, I go to event after event here in the UK and in Europe. And we debate the same thing every year, you know, what the future of PR and what's the big trends. What I see day to day is this massive paradigm shift. When I was starting out in, in this industry, the lines were pretty drawn. I think, you know, we were very much only earned media space. And whilst I think that might be too limiting, I think it's a really good place to pitch our tent. Our skill set is very unique and distinct from that of advertising or media buying. But I think what's happened is, I think because as an industry as a whole, and this is just this wide stereotype, I think we've been very slow to take ownership of our skill set. So what we've seen here in the UK in particular is a lot of agencies suddenly start to operate as one-stop shops, and they start to dabble a bit in, in content. And that's an interesting space for me because I, I do a training course for the PRCA called the C Word because another one of my bugbears is this obsession with content because mm-hmm. – you know, I think it's essentially it's essential for us, but we've always done content. Right? We've never called it that word. But the C word that I think that we need to focus on is conversation. So content means nothing without conversation. Exactly. So I think, you know, whether we talk about content or influences or whatever, we've always done that. And we are specifically placed as experts to have some nuanced conversations, okay, to, to really understand how to craft and adapt a message so that we can hit an audience and we can engage them and have a dialogue and it's pretty simple what I'm seeing day to day and maybe you know hopefully my view is completely skewed and completely wrong that's being lost and I think we are kind of selling ourselves short and you know I've got some theories on why that is and that I think that ties into the wider work I'm doing on the diversity side because I think that there is a correlation there Maybe I'm forcing it, I don't know, but I'm I'm trying to kind of see, well, why is it that we're in this space? Because throughout my career, we've always done some great messaging stuff. We understand how to reach our audiences, but we've been very, very slow to adapt to the rate of change that that technology has brought. It's a really interesting space for me, just on a philosophical level. Right, and I I think for all of us, and to the extent that our professional membership bodies that we are part of can be forging conversation, to your point, about these very issues, I think that's where community building happens in the profession. That's where we advance our profession forward when we're able to have 
real dialogue that helps all of us learn from one another, helps all of us advance the profession in meaningful ways. And it's always unfortunate when dialogue either is not happening or dialogue is getting cut off for whatever reason. Yeah, to expand that point, I think we as PR professionals need to look at, keep one eye on our external work and how we're actually fulfilling the output of our work. But most of that, if not all of it, is informed by our internal approach. So how are we insular as an industry? How do we recruit? How do we recruit talent? How do we train up on how far things are changing? And I think one then influences the other. So I think that the pace of embracing innovation, and I work in this digital space, and again, you know, I have to call out this as a digital because it's a very loaded term. And PR has failed to take ownership of what slice of digital it kind of should be owning. And I think we've become very obsessed with the channels and the specifics, whereas we kind of maybe lose sight of our fundamental skill set is exactly what you said. It's talking. Right? It's, it's about communicating. And advertising doesn't communicate. It broadcasts. You know, there is no dialogue in advertising. In PR, it is a dialogue. We are trying to get people talking about issues and trying to win them over and trying to kind of use a nuanced set of skills to reach our audience. And more and more, I think we're now living in 2020 in a time where there is no homogenous audience. It's audiences. And I don't think that that we necessarily as an industry, and I hope I'm wrong, I hope it's better in the US than it is here in the UK, but I don't think we understand the complexities of the different shared experiences that are out there. Right. And and as you were talking there, I was just thinking that it would seem that if public relations should own any piece of digital, it should be really at the strategy level. It should be the whys of why are we using digital in this way or that way. It's that fundamental piece of what is going to be the path that we chart for digital that achieves a specific business outcome or a specific relationship outcome? And, you know, I don't think even it's a choice now. I think maybe five, six years ago, I'd see a lot of agencies that were still talking about separate strands about traditional versus digital. That's still happening today, overlooking the fact that whether we, we like it or not, our audience is completely digital. You know, I go into strategy meetings at various agencies and I do some stuff in the healthcare space and they say, well, to reach an audience that is over 60s, we can't use digital. Now, now my mother is, you know, 70s and she lives alone and she's got health issues, she's got Parkinson's. And because of her circumstances, she has embraced WhatsApp. She has embraced Facebook. And, and in fact, the fastest growing demographic on Facebook is the over 50s. So I think there's a lot of assumptions and just blindness on our side that need challenging. And I think that that is a theme that has really informed my career is I see assumptions that just because of who I am, I think, is that right? I'm always questioning. Why do we think that? Or is that actually real? And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But it's so empowering to feel ignorant. And it sounds weird to say, but I love feeling out of my depth because it means that I've got room to learn. And that's kind of informed my whole career, I guess. And it's a bit of a weird sort of position. And that's probably why I work alone now. But um, (laughs) it's been eye-opening for me. Well, I couldn't have asked for a better segue there in terms of you're talking about stereotypes and people making 
uninformed assumptions about whether it's situations or whether it's about huge groups of people. But I would love to turn the conversation to this issue of diversity and inclusion of other people and other audiences. And well, I say other, not treating them as other, treating them as really everyone on equal footing and equal measure. And, you know, going back to the conversation we were having earlier about your earlier career, I was curious if you faced throughout your career specific discrimination as a professional of color and If so, you know, how commonplace has that been earlier in your career versus in more recent times? Yeah, it's it's been really useful for me as an exercise to reflect back on my career, because I think when I entered the profession, I probably was aware that I was an anomaly. And I say that not because I had any particular outstanding talents, but because of just the fact that I wasn't white. At the first agency I, I ever worked at, brilliant agency, no longer exists, but a brilliant agency. Every other person of colour who worked in that organisation, it was a big agency, were either cleaners or they worked in finance or they worked in the IT department. There were no one in the team of 100 or so PR professionals that were either black or of Indian heritage as I am or any other kind of non-white ethnicity. And at the time, I never ever was surprised at that that's what I expected, right, because of my experience up until that point. And I am just really privileged and fortunate that my journey up until that point was kind of supported by real positivity. I had a really encouraging family. You know, I, I was in a good place, not the best place, but I was in, in a good place. So when I entered the industry, that was my expectation of it. But then on a day-to-day basis... That's fine. I mean, I don't wake up in the morning and jump out of bed and say, hey, you know, I'm a brown person at all. And it's only instance in the day that make me realize, actually, there is a point of difference here. But I, I've always seen myself as British and as European, actually, more so. You know, my wife is a white French woman. It was quite normal in London to be a person of color and to be British. My parents came to this country in the 1970s from East Africa, my mother from Tanzania, and my late father came from Kenya. Now, they got racism. Right? The stories that my dad used to tell me would send shivers down my spine. So I grew up in a time where I didn't have any of that. I, I did, but it was very, very rare. But because of my upbringing, when I entered the profession, I had a choice. You know, Do I stick out as an anomaly and constantly feel this imposter syndrome? Well, there were some days that I did feel that, but there were specific instances, even 20 years on, that I can recall, looking back now, I feel angry about. And at the time, I wasn't, because I was young, I was naive, it was just the way of the world, and you let it go, and you expected that. I remember, you know, Rax come along as a young exec, why don't you go and look into the brown pound in the UK and the value of it and how we can optimize our, our offering to get more clients that speak to an Asian audience. Today, if I were to respond to that, who is this brown pound? Because are you talking about the Bangladeshi Uber driver that gets me home safely, or are you talking about the Kashmiri heart surgeon that is at the top of his field? It's a massive group. And I think that to really simplify and reduce it down to 
it's a homogenous community, regardless of the fact that it spans you know, six religions and probably 80 languages and lots of different kind of scenarios, to reduce it down to a brown pound, a homogenous group, is really problematic. And when I'm thinking about it now, I still find it hard to put blame on people. I don't think it came from a, a malevolent point of view. I think it's very tempting for us, as PR professionals, to rely on oversimplified demographics or audience or segmentation that has been fed to us by the ad world, by media buying world. I was born in 1978, but had I been born two years later, I would be a millennial. And so we still today, in agencies that I work with daily, say, well, let's target all millennials, as if it's a homogenous group, or let's target you know, new mums, because all new mums apparently have the same motivations. But the reason we come up with these broad categorizations is because the agency world doesn't understand that group. And the less we understand about a particular group or, or, or culture, the more tempting it is to sort of segment them all under one umbrella. And, and But that just doesn't live up to how things work right now, right? So it's been interesting to chart. What fills me more with anger and disappointment is that 20 years on, I'm hearing stories now in my role as chair of the diversity network at PRCA that just are chilling. So stories primarily from black professionals who have different experiences to mine. And then in no way less real or less important. And in many ways, they're a lot more serious. So still today, there are incidents that I've been privy to that are just unforgivable. Now, I'm now in a position to call that out or to stand up as a voice for those who don't feel they can talk about it, especially those junior people. But when I was at that stage of my career, I had nobody around me to stand up and say, that's not right. And just comments here and there, and it didn't impact on me. But looking back at it now, those things should never be said. But at the same time, I'm looking at how we're approaching misogyny in, in the industry or homophobia. And we've come a long way in just those 20 years. We've come a long way. Really, and I think it's important, and I don't think it's said enough from a DNI perspective, that needs to be celebrated. But, Marybeth, it's not been fast, it's not been easy, and we should have been moved beyond this by now. Mm-hmm. So the rate of progression has been frustratingly slow, and, and I think that's what probably brings out the angry rack in me. Right. It is a point of frustration for, and I would hope that it would be a point of frustration for all of us. Yeah. If we are not universally feeling frustrated about it, I'm afraid that simply means that from one's individual standpoint, they're not frustrated simply because it hasn't happened to them. Yeah. And they lack the empathy gene to properly emote <laughs> what yeah. you know what other people are going through and the unfairness of a situation that is limiting other people's human potential to be able to contribute not only to their organizations but to our society. And in so yeah. doing, our whole entire society gets limited in the process of this. I mean, it's a really interesting point. One that I was thinking about this morning, actually, was when I entered the profession, there was an element of fitting in that I needed to do. So I had two choices. I could either adapt 
And I think a lot of businesses, not just in our industry, at that time, we're, we're talking about race in terms of we're colorblind. Okay? It doesn't matter where you're from. Once you're in, you're in and you're one of us. But I, for whatever reason, I didn't necessarily always feel one of them, but I didn't feel necessarily completely divorced from that experience either. So I had a choice. I either divorced myself from my reality and my experiences and that of my you know, heritage and my family and, and, and all that stuff, and I come to work and I put all that behind me and I just fit in, okay? And that is an easy path to take. And to be honest, it's probably the one I took. It's probably the one most professionals of color take. They park their reality at the door and then when they come in through the door, they're in. They're one of everybody. You know, there's no difference and we're all together and there's no active open racism. But actually, I think reflecting on it now, that is so detrimental to our industry because we're now in an age where we need to understand the actual lived experiences of different people. And if you're forcing people to conform or to park their unique perspectives at the door when they enter the office, you are missing out. We are missing out on those insights that can only make us better professionals. So currently, you know, in a global pandemic, it's been revealed that people of black or minority ethnic backgrounds are more susceptible to the virus. Now, that has been missing in the UK in terms of the central government's communications. We've treated the comms as one homogenous society and we'll talk on the BBC every day for an hour and it will get through. And it hasn't worked because there are specific messages that aren't being communicated because they're being ignored. So it's really relevant. And I think we need to embrace difference and almost seek it out. And I've been complicit in, in the past when I've been in hiring roles and I've, you know, I'm, I'm in charge of bringing people into a workplace and I look at CVs, at the forefront of my mind is, would I get on with this person? You know, do we have points in common? And actually, reflecting on it, that's exactly what I shouldn't have been doing. I should be thinking, this person fundamentally represents something different to me because that's what I need, because that's what's missing. <laughs> because if I get people who... They go to the pub every Friday, have drinks, and they all read the same media and stuff. Well, they might be brilliant, and they are, but actually, that's not what I need. I need someone with a very different background who can challenge me, you know, right. can challenge the team and say, maybe that isn't appropriate, or maybe that, that isn't the message that is going to carry across the full audience. And that's a real learning for me personally. You know, I'd like to ask a question that I'd seen recently in social media about this idea of whether there should be a diversity and inclusion officer, like a chief DNI right. officer at the corporate level. Is that yep. idea passe at this point? And the argument there of eliminating that role is this idea that, well, it just silos that idea off and sequesters it off into some little corner somewhere and it allows management to say, oh, we have a DNI person now and and all is well and now let's move on with business as usual because that, you know, check yeah. the box, that's been done and they're going to go do their thing and whatever. And it does not necessarily shift the mentality or the culture of the organization, whereas if every executive and every management function within the organization is required to integrate diversity into their function, which I would presume 
that a DNI officer would be in charge of making sure that all mm-hmm. functions would be duly trained, but who knows what really happens in various companies. Yeah, there's just this debate going on right now as to whether the chief DNI officer, which seemed to be a great idea some years ago when it first came onto the scene as the next C-suite office to have, mm-hmm. has it really kind of worn out its welcome in terms of really the right pathway to integrate? It's a really, it's a really fertile territory to discuss because, I mean, to be honest, the last two months, I'd say, my phone and my email have not stopped because of people, either members of the PRTA, both in-house and on the agency side, saying, look, we'd love to talk to you about your thoughts on DNI, or it's from recruiters calling me up saying, hey, we've got a great, very senior global DNI role and you'd be perfect for it. And that completely overlooks my 20 years of history just being, you know, a fairly decent PR professional. It's now, it's I've been defined by the last year of, of my career. And the question that I ask is, well, why now? And I think it's to unpack that a bit. So just to remind, I'm speaking with agencies here in the UK that have got that role in place, and it has been brilliant because it coordinates their efforts through a meaningful process, but they do it well. But then that doesn't compare to experiences across the industry where token hires have been made as a way of kind of negating any responsibility from the C-suite to actually touch or discuss this. They've dealt with it, they've hired, they've, they've invested in it, and it's happening. And externally, they feel that's okay, that's enough for them to get a pass, and it clearly isn't. But if we go back to the question of why now? So I'm hearing every day lots of anger, understandable anger, anger that I'm part of, of people that have for years been overlooked. And I, I'm not even talking from the perspective of being non-white. I'm looking at, you know, I had a conversation this week with a very senior practitioner in PR who is in a wheelchair. He's got MS. And just hearing his story, I'm angry for him. I'm hearing still cases where the trans community in our industry aren't acknowledged. I'm hearing, you know, misogyny. I'm, I'm seeing examples of ageism. I'm thinking, well, these are all urgent issues, and they have not just started this year. They've been going on a long time. Why suddenly are the senior people in the industry talking about this and trying to do everything they can to employ, you know, or, or to get this right in their company overnight? And there's a lot to that, but it's an interesting starting point for me because if you need to employ a DNI coordinator or a manager, the message that gives me is that. You have no idea how to do it yourselves, so you're going to bring in an expert. And I don't think these experts exist. I'm not an expert in it, and I talk about it. I, I deal every day with, you know, apparent professionals, but unless you've had experience working in that sector or in that size agency, there's a lot of complexities around it that can't be solved with a template process. Right. So I think that the temptation is in hiring this role is it's delegating that to a department that previously recruitment or HR ran. And the only productive way of talking about getting over these barriers that exist everywhere is that everybody has to be involved in that conversation. Right? It has to be a collective decision. And unless it's done so, it can really fall in between the cracks and say, tick, we've done this. And externally, you look very sound but it makes absolutely no difference to the day-to-day experiences of your staff. 
And so, I don't know, uh, there are practitioners who operate at that level who I respect immensely because they've got a massive task of being great. But similarly, there are people who, who, who are hired, you know, who have no experience and it's a token gesture. And once they, even if they are driven, once they arrive with an organization, they are fighting the battle within <laughs> rather than actually getting stuff done. Exactly. And I think that if your CEO or your leadership team aren't sold in on this, are not willing to actually carve out their time and to dedicate the resource that they deserve to give to this, it's the wrong organization. And more and more now, I'm tempted now not to, not, not to talk to them. But if I get the feeling that that's what they want, that's fine. You know, they'll survive another few years, but they won't survive 10 years because they won't be able to recruit anyone. Their staff will leave. They will lose business. So on that point of why now... The honest truth is, Marybeth, is that there is finally now a commercial imperative to take DNI seriously. We never had that. DNI was always the people that were doing it well were people who actually cared about it, but they invested a disproportionate amount of their time compared to competitors in getting it right. And now, you know, this year alone, I've worked with the likes of Unilever and Diageo and P&G, global brands, who are firing their agencies in the US, in the UK, in Germany, in India, because they cannot show a commitment to diversity and inclusion initiatives. And that's why right now there's such a scramble for recruiters to phone around going, who can we hire? Because practitioners own industry now are being punished at the commercial end of things rather than seeing diversity as a recruitment thing as what they've seen been doing for years. So now it's actually hitting their bottom line. So the level of urgency has risen, and I don't agree in necessarily that motivation. And listeners, by the way, this is going to be part of a two-part episode. We've got so much great content here that this is going to be something to share across two segments. So be sure to stay tuned for our next episode that's going to be coming up ahead. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.